Okay, let's begin. You ready with this person? Ready? No, we are trying to provide what you will call <laughs> We're trying to provide a historical ideational overview of Tanakh. Historical ideational. Which means that one cannot understand the 24 books of the Bible, which again is probably the most significant book that was ever composed, without understanding its historical context. One has to know from what background the Bible emerged, number one. And that's true of each individual book as well. It's not only one context. It's a context that really is a 2,000-year context. You go back to Abraham, who was from the year... 4,000 years ago or 2,000 before the common era all the way till the last book composed which goes down to um, let's say um, Daniel or Zanachemiah it's not so clear or Esther or Kohelet you're going back 2,000 years or 1,800 years so the Bible is a 2,000 year work I want us to understand the historical context out of which it emerges, number one. But much more significant and much more critical is to understand the ideas, the philosophy of what the Bible really is all about. As I've maintained from the very beginning, the Bible is an educational tool by which we want to change the world. We want to change in the world, the impact upon the world with the biblical message. We maintain that the word is more powerful than the sword. And we've done so with our ideas. And I've given you, from the very beginning, not to review all of that, multiple examples of biblical ideas that have been incorporated into the civilized modern world. Whether it's the notion, which I consider to be the most powerful of all biblical ideas, which is said of Kim, that every individual human being is created in the image of God, which means is intrinsically, infinitely valuable, unique, utterly irreplaceable. Those of you who know, it was about um, last Wednesday, George Bush was caught off tape, it was on tape, but he thought he was off tape in that interview. What did he talk about? The individual right to freedom. That every individual human being is, is intrinsically, bless you, intrinsically special and unique. At Salomon O'Kim. So that Jewish idea, Bereshit chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, has impacted upon modern culture. There's no civilized person, atheistic or not, who would not pronounce the infinite value of every human being. That idea. But there are multiple other ideas. Laws of bankruptcy are rooted in the biblical idea that an individual deserves another chance. And I could simply wipe away all my debt with no repercussions whatsoever. It's called Teshuvah. I've changed. I need a new beginning. Shemitah, you're there. What do you do with Shemitah? Every seven years, we wipe away the debt. But I owe you the money. But too bad. Torah says, wipe away the debt. Give me another chance. Why should he give me another chance? Because I'm divinely inspired because I'm creating the image of God because I am a sentimental king I deserve another chance and too bad on his debt that I legitimately owe him bankruptcy laws Shemitah Yovel proclaim freedom throughout the land the Yovel that verse in Philadelphia Lubri Bell is of course the book of Vayikra Prashat Beha right so all of these ideas have been come, have become part and parcel of western civilization 
And when people speak about the Judeo-Christian tradition, really it's the Judaic tradition that has become the, at the forefront. All these ideas are Jewish ideas. And only Christianity has adopted them, paganized some of them, and then they've been absorbed into the Greek world and so on. Because much of Christianity is pagan. The notion of a resurrected deity is Krishna, 400 years before, 200 years before Christianity. So much of what Christianity says is a, a pagan idea, pagan ideals, whatever they may be. What, what's the definition of pagan? Abu idolatry. Seeing God become man, fixing the infinite into a finite form is paganism. Last week, which you missed actually, we spoke a lot about what made paganism so acceptable to the ancient world and is it possible again? Could we, as an American civilized country, re-paganize as Germany Nazism? Nazism is essentially a pagan movement. It's a pagan movement. So can it happen again? What is rooted in the human psyche that makes paganism so attractive to the human being? And understandably so, how difficult is it for a human being to capture the infinite? Hashem, the infinite, the ages, the eternal, when we are so finite and rooted, and therefore paganism is an option. So we discussed that last week, why Abu Dazara not only captured the hearts of the ancient Near Eastern world, even the Jewish world. The Jews for their first thousand years, or seven hundred years, were essentially syncretistically pagan. We spoke about what syncretism means, not to go over it again. We're syncretistically pagan. So along comes the Bible, Tanakh, and tries to reorient an entire world, and hasn't succeeded. We spoke about it. Yes, to an extraordinary degree, where 1.8 billion Christians have become, call them Christians who were pagan, have become Judaized. Now, of course, Christianity, Trinity, is a form of paganism, but a heck of a lot better than ancient biblical paganism. That's a wonderful step up for them. And along comes Islam, with 1.2 billion adherents, who even radicalize, even more so, monotheize the, the Jewish God, even. Allahu Awahid, God is one. Is their creed. Allahu Awahid, God is one. Is their absolute creed. You don't believe God is one, we kill you. Jews are not so extreme. They're willing to understand that education takes time and therefore we will get there eventually. So again, 50% or 3 billion people have been Judaized by our Bible, which is an extraordinary statement, an amazing statement. Let alone other ideas that have been absorbed into our culture, the idea of progress, seeing history as linear rather than as cyclical as a pagan would. Discussed all of this. So it's another idea, progress, which is the most powerful idea in the modern world from the 19th century onward forward. It's a creed of everything that we believe in and the rest of the believes in is a Jewish idea. Sinistry as linear rather than as cyclical, which is the ancient pagan idea. Again, it's a Jewish idea. From Gan Eden to the Messianic era is a linear, if bumpy, road from what was to what should be. That end is the ideal that we all want to strive for. It's a linear, sine curve kind of a road. So that too is a Jewish idea, very clearly so.
Now, this book has all these ideas, ideals, and values, multiple. Every chapter, one might say every verse, has an idea, ideal, or value with which it's going to change the world, which it has done. In the last 2,000 years, we've impacted enormously. Have there been setbacks? Absolutely. Nazism is a setback because Nazism is a reversion to paganism. Seeing the human being as not only not infinitely precious, but rather seeing the human being as finitely worthless. Nazism. I therefore can kill any human being that I want. And the more economically feasible, the better it is. Not worth one bullet. A bullet or the number. The bullet in Nazi Germany, I think, cost $1.29, if I remember correctly. That's what it costs in, in American terms. $1.29. And we want to kill people more efficiently, more economically, than spending $1.29 per person. Therefore, Zyklon B gas. So it was all about economics. So that's the opposite of what Judaism says. We're saying that it's infinitely precious and irreplaceable and unique. They're saying you're so expendable that we don't even care or need you. We want to get rid of you as much and as quickly and as efficiently as possible. It's exactly the opposite of Salem and Elohim. Human beings are expendable, replaceable, don't need you. And do so as cheaply as possible. It's the economic capitalist notion gone awry. One would not say that Judaism is either capitalistic, but it would say that we do believe in what we call managed capitalism, which is what America is. Capitalism, in the form of what we mentioned, I think, once before, social Darwinism, William P. Sumner, social Darwinism is the survival of the economic fittest. If you're smart and you're a risk taker and you're a good businessman, you make it. You don't? For the wayside, too bad. I have no social responsibility to you. Social Darwinism was a very strong movement in the 19th century. But we've evolved from that into what we're calling managed capitalism, which means that if you're hungry, I give you food stamps. If you need health care, we should have guaranteed health care in this country. Nobody should die because they can't get to a hospital. That's absurd. An infinitely precious human life is lost because he couldn't get to a doctor or because the mother did not know enough not to smoke marijuana and therefore the kid has some kind of disease or whatever it may be. So that's a social responsibility that we do have. So Mash Kaplan is a Jewish idea which is really in effect in America today. The welfare state as an extreme would be denied by Judaism. But elements of the welfare state incorporated into a capitalist economic structure would be the appropriate Jewish way of formulating society. So, this book contains all of these ideas, ideals, and values. We've spoken about the five books of Moses, the 19 books of the prophets, and last week we spoke about the book of Tehillim, the most famous and popular of all the biblical books. And remember the change of direction. Whereas, green today? Sure. Yes, Great idea. Great idea. He's blue. He's blue today. Okay, blue, blue. He's blue. You blue. too, Rabbi. I'm blue today too, right? Okay. Good point. Good point. Right. Very sensitive nuances. Remember that the first two sections of Tanakh, which is Torah and Nevi'im, it's the divine message down, God's word to man, right? So it's what you would call almost homeocentric. And Ketuvim, which is the third of the books, this is one and two, 
is man's response to the divine message. And that's the book of Tehillim. How we respond to this entire book of ideas that deals in values. How does a sensitive soul, such as David HaMelech, how does he respond to life's events? Birth of a child, death of a parent, illness, victory at war, loss at war, the natural order, standing on your porch, watching your wife nurse your first child, seeing the sun setting, the stars coming out, what do you say, what do you feel? Thank you. That's very nurturing. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. So, that is, David is a poetic soul who wants to record all of these emotions that he feels. Creative artists have a need to record for themselves personally, and perhaps one might say, even communicate that feeling to another. You write poetry, you paint pictures, you take photographs. I could ask Harvey, what motivated you to go to the Grand Canyon and take 2,000 photos? Is it about 2,000? I mean, that's what it seemed like. It was more? 400. Oh, okay, so now what motivated you? That's an artist at work. That's an amazing experience. Not to have been there, so I haven't been there, but to speak to him about it, watching his pictures. And whereas I may have seen a rock is a rock is a rock. <laughs> he saw nuances in every rock is a rock is a rock. In terms of sunlight, hitting it, in terms of depth, in terms of color, perception. It's astounding what he saw, what I didn't see. He's an artist, I'm not. He's a photographer, I'm not. So, the artist not only wants to capture, capture the experience what he wants to do is communicate that experience to another. So at 12 o'clock or 12.30 at night, when I said enough of these pictures, I was, you know, I was tired and it was a long day and all that, I got at 5.30 in the morning, he says, no, I have one more book. You have one more book. And I was being polite. I went through the first two books. Did I tell you this ever? But it was a great experience. Well, it was a great experience. It was a great experience because of watching him interact with his artistic creation. Welcome. <laughs> no, hey, show us some pictures. My, I'm finished. You want to hear something great? You'll show us pictures of the Grand Canyon. So that's a significant artistic move that he made at a particular point in his life. Now, he might not have done that 25 years ago. He may not do that 10 years ago. Artistry goes through phases in a person's psychological and emotional development. It's mind and emotion coming together. Mind and emotion coming together. It's interesting how things that I wrote to my wife 25 years ago is not something that I might write today, which is obvious. And how did I try to capture feelings 25 years ago? Because I'm not very creative. I took a pismon one of the Bekashot that we say on Shabbat, Aniyot Kadudi Arutz, which is one about love, right? Dodi is one who loves. And to cast into that poem. It wasn't mine, I didn't say it was mine. But that was the only way that I was able, 25 or 30, I guess 30 years ago, was able to capture an emotion and express it. So there's two movements. One is to capture how I felt, and two is to express it to another. That's the poetic mind. So to David Hamela. He had to capture all of those experiences, all of those experiences 
capture them and communicate them. When his son Avshalom rebels, would you want to capture that? Because an artist does not only want to capture that which is wonderful and beautiful. What does he really want to capture? Profound human emotions or pain. Pain is an emotion very much human that a sensitive soul David wants to, needs to capture. Now, is there a greater pain than your son rebelling against you, seeking your own death? Significant question. Now, I've been, of course, involved as a rabbi in the community in many situations where sons take over the father's business. And what's the next step? Throw the father out. It's one of the most painful issues that I, I do with a lot of stuff like that. Illness, terminal illness, divorce, stuff like that. But one of the most difficult is a father coming to me and saying to me with no expression, with no way of articulating that feeling that I built a business, he would say, for 40 years and I did it for what? I made my fortune. I'm fine. I'm 60 years old or 65. I am comfortable. So I did all this for my children. And what's the next step? My child throws me out and won't give me a desk, a phone, a hook to hang my hat on. And what does the kid say? You're in the way. We do things differently now. It's inevitable conflict. I want to conflict with you. You just retire to Florida. I'll pay the bills. But what does the father want? When he comes back to Florida for those six months of the winter, he wants a place to be. Just to be. A certain place. A place to go to. Because he doesn't want to, after 40s of building a business, he doesn't want to go no place. He doesn't want to be home and get up anytime he wants. He needs a direction three days a week. I know men who are 80, 82, 84 years old that are still going to work, who don't have to. Mr. Chira, Allah Shalom, who passed away about two months ago, it was what, 102, 100, 103. Two to three years before he passed away, he was going to work. At 84, he was running the business. Ask the son Joe. I'm very proud of Joe. Ask son Joe, it's amazing. And, and for the next 15 years, from 84 to about 97 or 98, he was still going to work. Why? Fulfillment, meaningfulness, seeing growth, a business is a child that you want to nurture. So what happens? You grow with the business and then your son comes in and pushes you out. That's pain. David and Milch experienced that push out. Avshalom, who, of course, you know the background. Remember what I told you. So you read the book of Shemuel, you find out what historical context that was involved, what they did react against. So Avshalom kills his brother, stepbrother, Amnon, who raped Tamar, his sister, and then runs away. David brings them back, and then Avshalom builds his own private army, and also does what? He throws out his father from Jerusalem, and seeks to kill him. So then David, of course, and this is the last thing that we're going to look at, this is all for you, David, because you missed last week. This is a summary, not, this is actually new stuff, but with just um, to give you a sense of what we did. We did, we did eight chapters last week. But um few sense of it, where David says, in chapter 3 on page 1414, please everybody have a Tanakh and open it up. In 1414, 
And remember that not always does David tell us the historical context. Sometimes you want to use the text itself to understand what's the historical context. Sometimes it tells us. It's an interesting question artistically. When does an author tell us and reveal his historical context? When doesn't he? And why doesn't he? There are multiple poems that David wrote for, for example, chapter 4, Psalm 4. doesn't tell us what happened over here. We may be able to conclude from the context that it's an issue of sickness. He's ill, he cries out, or whatever the case may be. We have seen in 13. All of a sudden, in 13, he feels abandoned by God, forgotten by God. Why does God forget him? We don't know why God forgets him. Did that mean sin? Is this a Bathsheba story? In 51, it was Bathsheba, as we mentioned. That's clear. But is 13 Bathsheba not told? Why does David feel over here that God has hidden his face from him? Chapter 13. We don't know from this context whatsoever. Or is it part of the sensitive religious personality who feels abandoned by God, not because of anything that you specifically did, but rather... Yeah, you do anything. Let's assume. Is it possible to feel abandoned by God? If you're a sensitive religious personality, is it possible to feel abandoned not as a result of anything you did, but life isn't going well? Sorry, Thanks. no. Not that it's not going. No chance. Not chance. No, absolutely not. Never chance. But as a result of what you expected. Not good enough. You just feel alone. Right. What is it true? that people simply, at times, feel alone, though crowded by people. Say, of course yes. What is she really saying now? That in the human being himself, there is a, what one might call, a dialectical movement from a need to be with others and a need to be alone. You ever feel to be alone? You want to be alone? You did. I'm not going to ask you why. Okay. But it's clear that there's a need. Uh, I remember a book, The Lonely Crowd. Uh, yeah, uh, Reisman. <laughs> yeah, Reisman. But I'm sure I'm not going to Yeah, that's about anonymity in a crowded marketplace. By Reisman, David Reisman, famous book. Yeah, exactly that. In other words, ruling your personality, the individual human being has a need to be alone, space, does not want anybody around, and yet, paradoxically, there are times when that very same lonely person has a need for people. So, so too in terms of that psychological need. It's true in terms of love. The person that you love most, it is true, that sometimes you will fall in and out of love. One doesn't always love. One falls in and out of love. And what do you have when you're falling out of love? When you're feeling out of sorts of love, what do you feel then? You, what, what happens? You have a trust. You trust that God will, that that person will once again be an object of my love and vice versa. You will merge once again. <coughs> You fall in and out. That's, life is that way. Why is it that way? That's the psychological make of the human being. And again, that's Bereshit. Bereshit is Man is created both alone 
and together with Eve in two different chapters of Bereshit. The two psychological statements about the nature of the human being. So too will be in chapter 13 where David feels that one can intensely believe and feel very close to God and there are times when one feels out of sorts with God. There are times when one is going to feel abandoned by God. Simply, it's the nature of the religious experience. Not because you did anything wrong. You did everything right. But you just feel psychologically distant or removed from a person, but so too from God Himself. But, you have the confidence and faith that at some point what's going to happen? You will reattach, reconnect with God. In this chapter 13, eventually, what will happen over here, is that at the end, David will feel once again reunited with God. That's 13. But back to 3 over here, he tells us exactly why he's writing the psalm. The He's running away from Shalom. This is Shemuel Bed, chapter 18 or 19, or whatever it may be. How overwhelming are my pain, my anguish. Everybody's against me. Because if your own son is against you, that means automatically that everybody's against you. Obviously, that doesn't need explanation. Correct? Correct. Everybody is saying to me, there's no hope. There's no salvation. If your flesh and blood rebels against you, and is chasing you to kill you, then there's any shuata. There's no salvation. There's no hope. Rather, Belohim. It's only in God David answers. You, God, will be my shield against my own flesh and blood. You will be my glory. Restore my dignity. What does a man feel when his own son throws him out of the business? He's de-dignified. Why? Because... If your own son throws you out, then how worthwhile of a person can you be? This is about dignity. It's about kavodat to me. It's about self-appreciation. It's a self-esteem. If your son threw you out, something's wrong with you. Serious business over here. So David says, You God, grant me kavodiyah, you enable me to lift my head. I will call out and God will answer me. There's confidence that eventually God will answer this issue. So the book of Tehillim, as we ended with last week, is a sensitive, religious, poetic soul recording life's events in rhymed verses to transfer the message to another person, another generation. Clear? It seems that uh, David sees God as withdrawing, retreating, uh, approaching closer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, actually, uh, God may be very, what should I say, um, steadfast. Absolutely. He's there all the time. It's just that David Excellent himself point. may... Feel that way. Yeah. Absolutely. A hundred percent. That that's exactly the point. Psychologically, we are somehow wired or geared towards establishing and distancing ourselves in from relationships. There are moments when one is closer to one's spouse, moments when one is further. Obviously, you have a child together, baby is born, you feel great love and intimacy and closeness. There are times when you're alienated. Not because of anything that he or she did, but only because that's the nature of the human being, to come close and withdraw. Yeah, that's exactly the point. 100% correct. God is always there. Therefore, David can pray to God who's there, even though David feels God has withdrawn from the relationship. I can't help thinking of the baby that's crying. Uh, uh, 
Oh, well, I mean, uh, the baby that's crying because mommy is not there at the uh, cradle all the time, but after a while, the baby had uh, faith uh, uh, that the mommy's there somewhere. As the baby he's matures, in, he's not there at the cradle right. all the time. So that the analogy breaks down because God is always there. The mother's not always there. Although the mother's always psychologically there, what you want to create in your children is the awareness that I will always be there even when I'm not physically there. When you need me, I will be there. You create that awareness such that the child can, when it first grows, you know, if you notice, you know, the three-year-olds, always, you, know, you, you walk down the block and the child turns around. You're still there? You know, and then the child gets older and is able to turn the corner. But it knows you're still there because it runs back and it sees you there. And eventually what will happen is that you've created psychologically a bond with that child that the child feels secure that you'll always be there for them no matter what. Your love is always guaranteed them even if you're not physically there. So you're right. Absolutely correct. Yeah. Okay. That's the book of Tehillim. Now we're going to go on to the next of the books of the Bible, Mishleh. Now, what is Mishleh translated as? Proverbs. 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 Correct? Proverbs. What is the Hebrew of the what does the Hebrew word mean? Nishle. Mashal. Mashal. Very good. Okay, now, what does Mashal mean? Example. Parable. Good. Mashal. Uh, parable. Okay. Um, have an analogy. Okay. Something that's analogous. Metaphor. Why do we call it Mashal? Mishle. Why is that the term that we use? It's Proverbs, of course. Yes. The word Mashal. Etenachan Mashal. I'll give you what's Mashal. I'll give you a Mashal. What's Mashal mean? An example. For instance. For instance. Uh, Yiddish, uh, that means uh, to give an example. Okay, good enough. Good. So now that we just said in Yiddish, we all understand it. Good. How about some Arabic over here? Maybe a little bit better. The answer is, it's an interesting point. This entire of course, throughout the book, it's Beni. Beni means my son. Teacher sees the student as his child. And the teacher here is teaching... What? What's most important to teach? Math? Science? History? What's most important to teach a child? Morality. Sorry? Morality. Morality. Ethics. How to live life properly. Not Greek morality which is rooted almost in a theoretical construct, but rather practical morality. Practical morality means what to do and what to not to do to live life successfully. Life cannot be lived successfully if the child, if you are dishonest, if you lack integrity, if you mess with wayward women. It's a major theme of Mishleh, wayward women who lie in wait to grab the innocent youth. So the teacher says, beware of those women who want to capture you, take you, and leave you in the dust. Interesting perspective on women. One could write a thesis on Mishleh's view of women. 
I'm not doing it. Here's my last thesis. Enough. <laughs> 25 years later. But it's an interesting question. So now, Mishlev is about a teacher, a master teacher, who wants to teach wisdom. But wisdom over here is not theoretical wisdom. It's practically... It's a practical question of how to live life well. Now, communication is very difficult, that we know. What is a teacher's greatest asset? Example, a good. model. A good. Model, a good. Model. Excellent. Why is that so? Why is a teacher's greatest asset not only his ability to explain, but rather examples is more important? than anything else the teacher has. What is an example really all about? New York Times, Saturday, Leo Strauss. Those who read the article. Anybody read the article, Leo Strauss, from Saturday or Sunday? Leo Strauss, good man, you like him? Really? I love you. <laughs> Kenny, I love Leo Strauss. Why? Oh, the daughter wrote about Leo, him. Yeah, but she's not married, unfortunately. Why do I love Leo Strauss? For two reasons. One is because if I finish my German, my German uh, studies, I had to translate one of his articles from German to English. And I hated doing it. And I was so angry at him for writing it. And then two years later, it was translated by a professional, and I wasted all my 25 hours translating the article. It was a very important article. That's number one. Number two is because he wrote one of the most important, insightful books on Maimonides in the last hundred years, which is called Persecution and the Art of Writing. How does one write if one knows that one is going to be persecuted? I use this every single day. Whatever I write is always with the view that I may be persecuted for what I'm going to write. Therefore, I have to write in code. So one has to write in code. So the Ramam taught us how to write in code if you know you're going to be persecuted. You think I have a complex about that? Well, I want you to know that even paranoid people have real enemies. Yeah, I forgot to. I don't have a shot. Okay, that's the problem. Other tips that I make are shut off at one point or another. You always notice that. But it's not a shut off. So you're in charge of that. You're responsible for this. So, for description of the art of writing, he takes great minds. Plato is one. The Bible is another. And my mind is another. And he shows us how the guide for the perplexed. My mind's better plus is really a code book which nobody had noticed for the last thousand years. It's a brilliant work. It's a great book to read for Scripture and the Art of Writing, especially the chapter on Maimonides. And he explains that Maimonides is a brilliant thinker, and a brilliant thinker would never obviously contradict himself. Of course not, right? But we find contradictions in Maimonides all the time. Why is it so? He's trying to hide behind his real true feeling about something was a veneer. was a veneer for the average person who reads the book. Average reads the book, he becomes and is aware of one system of religion. The sophisticated reader, the sophisticated reader knows how to find the true opinion of Maimonides. When I was in Russia a few years ago, uh, 25 years ago, under Brezhnev's regime, and we had to smuggle out information when you write, the sun is shining. It's one message to somebody back here. When you write, it's cloudy. There's a um, fog coming in. What are you really saying? The assumption is that the censor who's going to read my letter thinks I'm talking about the weather. Because you never hire somebody very intelligent to be a censor. Because what does censor do? It just reads and reads. 
So he's a, he's a technician. It's like a secretary. He just types and reads. You don't want him to correct or do anything like that. So you hire people that are not very smart. So you have to be smarter than that person and write in a cold way that he will never know that you're really writing, a, making a political statement that's about the weather. So Maimonides, a whole new dimension of Maimonides was revealed by Leo Strauss's work on Maimonides. So it's great. So that's why I love Leo Strauss. But back to my original point. In Leo Strauss's article, it's like, one second, uh, he makes the point that a great pedagogue is he who can bridge the distance between teacher and student how? With analogies, with metaphors, with the ability to be able to bridge that gap. Because obviously two human beings are two different places, teacher and student. But I have to be able to explain to you an idea. And I have to take that idea to you by virtue of something in your, fill in that blank, in your, in your, how do you understand any idea? In your background. background. Your experience. Because you know what you experience. You know what's in your background. So you're able to understand my idea. You're able to bridge that gap. Now, of course, no idea, no two ideas are exactly analogous. No analogy is perfect. But if I can end up with communicating the idea well enough, then I will hear from you a, wow. You'll hit it. You'll get it. All of a sudden, that idea which was so opaque at one, per- at one point, all of a sudden becomes, Wow. Generally speaking, I tell my students in Hillel that if I don't make you say wow three times this year, I failed. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. If I, if, you, if I didn't give you that sense of enlightenment, that all of a sudden, wow, now I understand something, and it happens. Sometimes. <laughs> I get always three wows. I get two sometimes, one and a half. So, oh, they don't want to say it. I'm not giving you a teacher the side, especially if I'm not get you wow with me, so I don't say it all. But I see it in their eyes sometimes. So, therefore, Mashal, Mishleh, is he's going to try to communicate to you a value system using Mishalim, using proverbs, using analogies, using metaphors, which are not exactly alike, but at least they're going to communicate a message of how to raise a child. That's what you shouldn't do over here, right? Yeah. How to raise a child. If I may go back please, to please, the Rambam yeah. for a moment. No, he's like a good uh, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, the Rambam uh, addressed, he addressed himself to different audiences, and I think in one of his books, maybe the Guide to the Perplexed, he said, you, are, you, my reader, are sworn to secrecy. I do not want you to... Change. Uh, communicate. Uh, or reveal. Right. Convey what you read here in my book to anybody else. He doesn't swear secrecy, but that's correct. He doesn't want you to reveal whatever, whatever he wrote, writes here. And in fact, he does tell us that he's going to contradict himself. He tells you in the introduction, which is the, the key to the code. He tells you, I am going to contradict myself in... There are um, seven types of contradictions that authors make. I'm going to use method three and five. So he tells you a system. Very few people know how to read the guide. In this community, maybe there's two. Introduction's harder than the book. You're one? I'm one. Right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I'm not even that good. I'm, I'm, I'm good, but not good enough. Really? I'm not good, but not good enough, right. I mean, it takes endless uh, hours of study, which we've done. It's, it's, it's an extraordinary book. It really is an extraordinary book. 
it's written so sophisticatedly, so brilliantly, that he does hide his true religious philosophy. Next year's question. Oh, sorry? Next I wouldn't even attempt it. I'm not good at analogizing that much, that well. The other guy. Which? Thank you, guys, for those. Sorry? Thank you, guys, for those, too. Oh, I don't want to. Me, too. I have the feeling that those are doing. No. Yeah, I want, I want, no, he's not here. Is it here at one point in time when I was doing my thesis on this topic she was vying for my attention with the Rambam so it was, uh, I was doing Rambam and his son and she and my daughter just didn't get in the picture she was, so it was that so yeah Sorry. I have the feeling that the Rambam have a lot of revolutionary ideas which he never actually articulated in writing because he felt that the people well, the community did. were not ready for that's what that's true he did articulate that in code writing again to understand the code for the art of writing reveals some elements of the code but really the Rambam is so sophisticated that his introduction really does reveal his key it's extraordinary I mean, it's, it's amazing it's wonderful to the extent where sometimes he'll say know this my son now to understand that means know this his son Right? He wants you to pay particular attention at this point to this issue. He doesn't always say that. He doesn't say particular points. So you have to analyze that. And he tells you, what I say in one place can only be understood by reading another place. And you have to take chapter 5, let's say, with chapter 45 and read one in light of the other, ignoring the intervening chapters. So it's that really difficult work. And he has the code words. There are code words that he puts over here, puts over here, and reads together. So it's a very complex book to read. So you're right. I reminded of something else. The Lubavitcher Rebbe told his Hasidim That's right. to start learning the Rambam every day, the Dapiomi right. every day, and his Hasidim thought he was uh, maybe crazy or something. Right. Right. Was, uh, uh, the Rambam was anti... Uh, was um, uh, uh, rationalistic, and right. the Hasidim generally are not that rationalistic. That's correct. Right. And But he said, read it. You study the Rambam, I'm not going to explain to you. Probably because he had in mind they wouldn't understand what he's, why he's telling them to study the Rambam, but do as I tell you. Yes, I think it. you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, there's a lot to say, especially the Mishneh Torah, which does have a certain level of mystery to it as well, although not as much as the guide. We do that in, in the summer, we do the Rambam. You know, we do Maimonides, Dachmanides every Sunday, so we're invited to that. Back to Mishleh. So now, Mishleh over here is very much about a teacher speaking wisdom to his student, practical advice on how to live life properly what deed you should engage in and what temptations you should avoid. So now I could ask you the question, what temptations are there out, are there that if you were 18 years old and let's say uh, you're male a or female. <laughs> right, that's a point, point. He's mentioning to a male child, which is interesting. It's Beni all the time. It's never BT. The teachers in those days were probably male teachers teaching those who go out to the world. The women who go out to the world, they were not viewed as necessarily in need of teaching because they didn't go out to the world. But what are the temptations you want your child to avoid? So let's say you're a parent. And let's say your kid's about 18, 19, 20 years old and he's going out to the world. What message would you want to communicate to that child? Depends on the kid. Sorry? Depends on the kid. 
Okay, that's true. What's that's true. It mean? depends on the kid. Depends upon, yeah, every child would be a different message, but is there a broad one? Yeah. So you're going to tell the child to be safe from what? What are you worried about? Women. Okay, right, so one would be women. Okay, that's true. You're not worried about your child? I don't know if you have a child, but are you, are you worried about what could possibly happen with women? I, I'm, how old your, I don't know. Okay, I have a 25-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 10-year-old. Oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Is your 25-year-old married? No. Okay, good. So now that's a good example. So now he's ready to come out into the world. Is a concern of yours as a mother that he might get involved well, in war? So oh, that's, oh, so you must ruin, ruin my whole example. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Anybody have, a, have an 18, 19-year-old male child not married? Okay. Right, me, 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 I have one. I got one. Right, exactly. Right. Now, why is that so? Because there is within the human personality, really it's male or female, truth that's real male or female, that inclination. It's natural. Keep on. Exactly. It's universal. It's natural. So I'd be concerned that I'm sending off my 21 year old or 23 year old. One has to be concerned about that which is a natural temptation. I hate to say it, but God made us weird in that way. There are, well, it's wonderful to be tempted also. I mean, I mean, legitimate temptation. Right. You know what I mean by that? We get married first, then I want you to be tempted. <laughs> we don't get married, don't be tempted. Exactly, right. Right. So it has to be in a certain framework. But outside that framework, we're very concerned. You send your kid off to college. If I remember correctly, uh, in an article by Irving Greenberg in 1967, he's speaking about the college scene and American Jewish values. And his point over there was that the college campus is the greatest threat, this is 40 years ago, Irving Greenberg, the greatest threat to Judaic morality and values. It says because an extraordinarily high proportion, that's then, of Jews are going to college, 60%, 70%, whatever it was, right? And in on the, your values are under attack to an extraordinary degree in the college realm. Not only was he concerned about, let's say, intellectually, whatever course you take, whether it's science and religion or sociology of religion or biology and evolution, whatever, go, whatever it's about, that is a serious issue. But more significantly is a sexual issue. Because then he said 91% of male college students and I think it was 83 or 84% of women college students cohabit. Mm -hmm. You know why he wrote the article in 1967? It was 66 or 67 when they started having uh, co-ed dorms. Dorms, exactly. Very true. Yeah. Very, exactly. Co-ed dorms. So now, if that's the case, now your kid's natural biological temptation could result in a disaster. Which means marrying the wrong person, impregnating the wrong person, getting impregnated. Shema Israel, what are we talking about over here? Diseases. Sorry? Diseases. Diseases. Well, then he didn't speak about diseases, but that certainly is an issue. But my concern would not be diseases. My concern is falling victim to temptation. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Mishle is very concerned about that issue. He's telling you to beware of that wily woman who lies in wait. For you, point number one. What else would you... Now, by the way, how does he end the book of Mishleh? 
The very last chapter. Eshet Chayel. Miriam Sah. His last chapter that he wants you to go home with. And notice how the Judaic folk wisdom has adopted that model that every man says it every Friday night. It's the same issue. Married men. Are we married men? What was a married man here? Quiet. You don't know about this. Are we victims of temptation? Some of you may not want to answer that. Yeah. No, you can't say yes. You're not a married man. I know it's only natural, but you still can't say that. I can't say about being pregnant, right? I think like a married man. Oh, that's okay. Good. You do? You do? I'm really leaving this way. So now that's interesting. That if a married man is still a victim to temptation, and notice how quiet Manny was this last night. I noticed you weren't answering. I didn't want anybody else to notice. So that's why I'm not pointing it out. So, but amazingly enough, what do we men say every Friday night? It's a statement of the virtuous woman, which is exactly the opposite of his view of a woman throughout the entire book. But he ends on this beautiful note, and again, Jewish folk wisdom is that we will praise that virtuous woman and what her values are. And again, it's a beautiful chapter that's worth reading and studying and analyzing. Her compassion, her concern for other people, her willingness to, to give to others. And interestingly enough, shake it a hand with a yofi. Beauty is only skin deep. It's not important. Woman who has the right values, stands in awe of God, is the woman that she wants. And now, interesting question over here. You're a father telling your son to look for a woman. What are you going to tell him? Are you going to tell your child, look for wealth and riches? Are you tell your child, look for beauty? You want a beauty queen? Or you tell your child, find a virtuous woman who is Irat Hashem. So the author of Mishleah obviously says that it's the woman who stands in awe of God, who has the right values of life, who is trustworthy and loyal, who is compassionate to others, all of that is what you want to find in a woman. Uh, interesting. You know, it, it's, I, I find that extraordinary as to the author of Mishle's view of women. Yeah, David? Who's the author? Shalom, King Solomon. King Solomon. Now, we, so there's controversy that I did the whole book or, or parts of the book or... I'm on tape. <laughs> <laughs> Next. So the... It's okay, no problem. So now, what other issues are there to be, tempt, to be tempted about? Obviously, women is one, but what's another one that... And again, think of your own experiences. What is Mishle as a father going to tell his son? He's a teacher, but he calls his son Beni. What's the other issue that could be a concern to you? Yeah? You don't want him to be suckered in by, um, like, dishonest people. Exactly. Very good. The get-rich-quick, get-rich-quick people who are going to sucker him in, who are going to tell him, we will give you great riches, join with us. How many people do you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, who don't have that wealth of experience, to know to avoid those kinds of people and those kinds of schemes. There are two inclinations the rabbis tell us. One is for sexual issues, natural desires, and two is money. Who does not want to be very much very, very quickly because that's how you can enjoy life. You could have your cars and your houses and jewelry and everything else that you want. 
rip. But who wants to work for the money? That's hard. I had this one kid once. He was about 29 years old. A really sad story. I mean, this goes back 20 years. At 20 years old, the time, 20 years old, and he said um, he wasn't doing anything, wasn't working, and he had all these kinds of schemes of money, insurance schemes, and using different names, schemes, all kinds of schemes of, you know, of living life without working, right? And uh, so I brought to me to talk to him. I said, "This is not going to work. You need to really work to make money, you know." And, and it happens to be that he had an uncle who made a tremendous amount of money by um, <coughs> discovering a rock group, right? Discover somebody else, and you know, I won't say if it's a Shkenazic or Syrian, it's not important. And uh, he discovered his rock group, and he made a trust money in a very short period of time. Right? Good. So that was his model. And what's sad about it is that his father was a great, wonderful guy, fantastic person, who did make money, and was well off. But the son tells me, my father was stupid. Um, like that. I said, why? Because he worked to make money. Why? He wants my money? No, no, no. Because you work, get to work to make money. There's nothing smart about working to make your money. That's foolish. That anybody could do. Work, make money, that's easy. What's the trick of life, he was saying to me? Not working. And make money. Right. Beat the system. So in, I said to him, you know, with that attitude, you're not going to ever get married because you don't know about responsibility, you don't know about commitment. You're not going to ever make anything out of your stuff. Now it's 20 years later. And guess what? He's not married, no job, still the same thing. It's a very sad story. It's a human being. It's a human life. It's a Melokim. Just didn't get it. And I, of course, had no role to play in this. And it's, it's very, and I failed in that sense. But I could communicate the message with, to him. And uh, Mishle is very concerned about Daniel's point. Mishle is very concerned about people then who would be taken in by these kinds of financial schemes in order to sorry get rich quick get rich quick types of schemes <coughs> pyramid schemes whatever it may be so Mishle is very concerned about that and therefore Mishle will adopt pithy sayings that are able to capture an entire ideal notion for example chapter 1 verse 8 Shema Bini Musad Avicha listen my son teacher to a student the ethical discipline of your father and don't abandon the teachings of your mother. Meaning, sorry? What does that mean? Yeah, I don't think it's Oedipus. I think it's very simply, simply saying that traditionally your father's going to teach to you, he's going to give you the ethical discipline Musad is discipline, is ethics. Ethical discipline, follow it. Follow the ethical maxims of your father who's out there in the business place, who is tempted and has lived life and knows how to steer you into the right direction and don't abandon the instruction of your mother who provides a different kind of education. Eric Fromm, uh, The Art of Loving, he has two different roles. The father and the mother each has to give communicate to the child one body of knowledge. Emotional knowledge or whatever it may be, one body. So that's what he's saying over here. Or something, sorry? The, the father gives the discipline. The ethical discipline, right. And the instruction is, like the mother gives... Of living life, I guess, in a... He doesn't make it clear, I mean, but I would say... Living life in a appropriately, appropriately no. dignified way. That's what I'd say. I think we'd have to study the entire book and see the role the mother plays throughout the entire book to find exactly what he means by that. It's a good point. Look at um, verse 10. Bini, my child, 
if they shall transgressors shall persuade you don't go with them they say come with us and we shall lie in wait to kill innocent blood spill innocent blood we will hide for the innocent we did nothing wrong we will swallow him as the underworld swallows people alive and as your dead board as those innocent people go into the pit and they will say what? Kohon We will then find precious treasure. That's what Daniel's worried about. Finding a precious treasure. We shall fill our homes with all kinds of booty. Shalal. Put in your destiny with us. We will have one pocket for everybody. Beni, my child, don't go in the pathway with them. Refrain your feet from their pathways. Because they shall run to evil and quickly spill blood. And he goes on and on about that particular issue. So he's telling you to live life in a wise fashion. Trying to avoid the temptations that one finds in life itself. It's a very life-rooted kind of a book. Um, He wants you to listen to practical wisdom, which is ethics. And every chapter, chapter 2 for example, to listen to wisdom, your ears, will not turn your heart to insight. And so on. Seek her out like money. Don't seek, in verse uh, 4, don't seek out money, but seek wisdom as if you would seek out money. Interesting question. Is it the case that you would think that 3,000 years ago when this was authored, that money was an issue of life? Is that a universal issue that going back 3,500 years ago till this very day, the same temptations? Is... Right, so okay, so Shalomor, believe that, fine. But are you not surprised by that? Or is that also a natural human instinct? Sex, we accept, has not changed in 3,500 years. Right? (laughs) We accept all that. How about the desire for not really need but desire for my net money financial gain as ill-gotten as it may be that's still an issue the people still frequent Las Vegas and Atlantic City and other places to get a quick dollar yeah. is it a problem in our community where young kids are going there to make a quick dollar mm-hmm. <laughs> enough said I think that the basic theme of the mislay is watch your yater Exactly, correct, correct. Yet the Haraka applied to be sexual, or it could be uh, money. Absolutely. But it could also be too much emphasis on your own inclinations without enough sensitivity to other people's interests or desires. In other words, a way of making you more civilized. Don't think just of yourself. Correct, right. Think of others, their needs and their desires. Right. Yeah, and watch yeah. out for your Yetzirah Haram, which shouldn't interfere with all that. Right, exactly. So here we find Shlomo Amir wants you to pursue justice and righteousness as ends in of themselves. It's a ethical discipline where does that get you but dad I want a new Porsche I want a house and deal 
that's they're promising him. What can I promise you? A life of integrity. At the end of the day, he will say that you'll be happier as a human being with a life of integrity, pursuing Tzedekum Mishpat, verse 9, or to be saved from evil pathways, you'll be much happier as a person by going in those pathways of righteousness than in the Question. So that's the interesting point. At the end, happiness is what counts. So it's not even saying doing right for right for right's sake. That's a high level. Just do right because it's right to do. That's a very high level. It's a high level of ethical development. It's not saying that. At the end, your happiness will be rooted in doing what's right. So this entire book of Mishleh is a wonderful statement of a father to a son or teacher to a student of how to live life properly in a fashion that's going to bring you calm, harmony, and tranquility. To avoid the temptations of life, sexual or financial, is what its main motif is. Okay? Now, yeah. Sorry. Um, so I'm going to say that... Uh, to give an example, I know a young lady, um, she's about 40, and she's full of this, she, uh, that she is overcautious and that there isn't enough spontaneity. Uh, I mean, we have to balance one thing against another. We have to be cautious, but we also have to have spontaneity. Uh, in certain areas. I'm sorry, what? In certain areas be spontaneous. Not yeah. in all areas, oh, but no, in certain I'm areas. I'm saying, though, just in general, uh, one may take this too seriously, take it too hard, too much. And I'm talking about a young lady who is firm, you know, she's a... She's a good girl, let me put it that way. I'm happy with that. But, <laughs> but it's more than life than just being a good girl, you know, the, about color. Uh, I'm not sure we go with this, but I'm concerned. <laughs> yeah, there is. And I, I'm not, but again, I'm not really sure. I'm sorry? That's not what Michelle is. Correct. He's pointing that out. Michelle is not saying, be colorful, be spontaneous. He's not saying that. You're right about that. I think we have to discuss this more. Um, Another occasion. Okay, right. Okay, look back just for a moment, and I want to take five minutes of this class to look at page uh, VII. What you, we've seen over here is the book Tehillim, Mishleh, and, and I want to leave Job alone for a second. Then you have five of the one, two, three, four, five of the Megillot, Hamesh Megillot, Song of Songs. In what one word, how would you characterize Song of Songs? Song of Songs is a philosophical work which is rooted in a man's physical desire for a woman but which has been interpreted by our rabbis as God's love of the Jewish people. It's a very physical work. It's a very graphically physical work. And yet, when the rabbis wanted to bury this work, Rabbi Akiva came along and said that all the books of the Bible are holy. Shirashim is? Holy of Holies. The most important work. The amazing statement. Masechet Yadayim. Things Peter Gimel. All the books. There were three books the rabbis wanted to bury. One is Shira Shirim. Two is Kohelet. And three is Yehezkel. Right? The rabbis said these are not worthy of the Bible. They should not be canonized. Bury them. And... At the end, they were able to accept Kohelet because of its last verse, and they said that Yehezkel, despite its contradictions to the book of Aikra, and Shirashirim is Kodesh Kodashim. Why? Because it speaks of God's love of the Jewish people. 
So the book of Shonda is a philosophical work interpreted as God's love. Interesting that the analogy used to express man's love for God and God's love of man is a physical love relationship between man and woman. Analogy. It's not at all really commensurate. These two loves, they're very different kinds of love. And yet, for the Torah to communicate how one should love God, it takes an experience that we know about. A man's love of woman, woman's love of man. And it's able to bridge the gap between man's love of God, and what we love a woman, by using this analogy. So analogy bridges that gap between one abstract ideal love and with the physical love of woman. King Solomon is a vote that I've written sure as she ran as well. Right. But it was young. Right. And then Miss Lay in his middle age. Correct. And Kohalad was right. more cynical in a way in his old age. Yeah, I don't want to call Kohalad. Kill, kill oh, okay. I, 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 I don't like cynical people. <laughs> and then let's go on. Root, of course, is, a, is an extraordinary work. Divinely inspired. All these books of Ketuvim are to be viewed as divinely inspired. They are human reactions to, to the divine call. Tehilim, of course. Mishleh, of course. The right way of living life. Yoh, we'll get back to, in a, I guess, next week for a moment. Shirshinim, yes, Ruth is one woman's great commitment to the Jewish people. Ruth, Hamuabiyah, who's so committed to the Jewish people that she wants to convert and live her life as a Jewess. And of course, ultimately, she becomes the great-grandmother of King David, and ultimately the great-great-grandmother of Melech Mashiach. How is that man to God? Oh, sorry, she didn't talk about. Oh, how is this yeah. man to God? Yeah. What do you mean? Root is an expression of a human being's great commitment to Torah Moshe, to Torah Hashem, to God's values. So that's why it was incorporated into the canon. It's not about Hashem to us. It's rather what she felt in terms of intense commitment to Hashem. So therefore, it's over here. Lamentations, of course, is a book of elegy. It's a crying work. It's a very sad work written by Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah, upon seeing the destruction of Jerusalem in what year? Good before the common era. We're going to cover next week as well, besides the book of the Yob, a historical timeline that's going to put all of this in its right historical context. We'll get at all of these, and it's 20 dates that you want to know. Take home, memorize, and be tested on next year. So, <laughs> get to know it. Uh, why is there a discrepancy about the uh, destruction of the temple, the first temple, and uh, 586 is accepted by a lot of scholars, but right. in the Talmud, I think there's a different right. thing. Yeah, not to be worried about right now. <laughs> that's, that's a little bit more technical, uh, and, and we're not worried about right now. So, Shkafeshi is the book of books, okay? So, Lamentations Echa, Yirmiyahu, 586, crying Echa Eshrabadad, how the city remains so alone. Echa. Ecclesiastes Kohelet, one of the most profound biblical books, philosophy of life. I often ask my students to list for me philosophical works from the Ketuvim. And they, of course, all know that Kohelet is a philosophical work asking the question, what really is life all about? We had uh, a foolish Tanakh um, head of our department at one point, and that teacher demanded of our teachers to teach Kohela to freshmen. And I said to the teacher, to the head of the department, how do you expect a 15-year-old person to understand what Kohela is really all about? 
That's an absurd statement. Kohelet is so much about life that unless you've experienced it, then you cannot understand it. And what 15-year-old child can understand the pessimism, cynicism, I don't want to say it, about life? You can't. And even the most artful teacher is not going to be able to analogize to that student regarding this book. Why? Because there's nothing in the 15-year-old's experience that can relate to what this is really all about. Maybe you can dramatize it enough. Maybe you are a teacher who can do it. I will try it. You, that 40-year-old will bring it here and we'll try to see if you can get into this book. Okay. Now, instead, of course, again, is a great work. It's a humanly inspired work of salvation, of Jewish salvation, of a situation wherein Jews act on their own to protect themselves without, in quotes, the help of Hashem, without the help of God. The word, the name of God, is not present whatsoever in the book of Esther. We all know that. God is not there. Rather, the message of Esther is that we have to act on our own to protect ourselves. Especially in Galut. It's the only one of the biblical books that deals exclusively with Galut life. And therein lies this message. Galut life is threatening. Watch never feel secure in Galut life. And that one has to understand how political power works. It's all about political power. Haman rises to political power. Haman falls for political power. Instead, rises to political power. And even a woman using her sexual charms to achieve political power is one of the messages of Esther. Right. So it's an obvious point. Esther is about political power and how to survive. So the rabbi said, this is a lesson that Jews have to know. How to survive in Galut through the manipulation of political power. Right? Good. Daniel, of course, relates to the Persian period when, again, living in Galut, but openly going to Eretz Israel, having all kinds of dreams and visions about future destiny. A person who maintains his religiosity, his piety, his faith, even in the lion's den, quote-unquote. So Daniel is, again, a pivotal person, and because his image is so inspiring, he's included in the Ketuvim. Ezra and Nehemiah speak about Shivat Siyon. This is out of chronological sequence. I want you to be aware of that. We'll talk about that next week. And going back, it's an amazingly relevant contemporary work, Ezra and Nehemiah. Why so? Because you have 200,000 Jews exiled in 586, 539, Kodesh, Cyrus says, Jews, go home, back to Jerusalem, and rebuild your temple. And of those two, three, four hundred thousand Jews, only 40, 42,000 Jews go back. Why is it so relevant? Why is it so contemporary? Exactly. That here now, after 2,000 years of Galut, we now have this extraordinary miracle overwhelming miracle in our time which is called the state of Israel and the call is going out Jews come home we prayed for this we said three times a day for 50 years of our life we said it let's go back let's go back let's go back we're still saying it and we're still saying it that's Chutzpah even exactly that's Chutzpah's school. we're still saying it and how many of us have gone back it's an endless guilt trip you know that I feel and yet I can't go back what are my lame excuses my family, my synagogue, my profession, 
but it's not a lame excuse to serve a purpose here. It's not a lame excuse. That's lame. <laughs> I mean, I hope, I hope you're right. You're right. I shouldn't say, I shouldn't be so um, guilt ridden. That's cynical, right? I'm not saying that, right? Yeah. It, it, hopefully it's not. And hopefully we do serve a purpose. But even if I were selling pocketbooks, I wouldn't go back either. So, you know, it's, just, it's family. It's, it's, it's rootedness. It's the same exact story they said. Our business, our family, we can't go back. And it's only 40,000 of the fortune. 10% went back. And the real difficulty is that 300,000 Jews, other than the Jews of the Soviet Union, made Aliyah in 1948. And the number given of Jews that left Israel is 300,000, other than Jews of the Soviet Union. It's amazing. Jews leave. And it's always difficult. But I can't tell them anything because it's economically difficult over there. How do you make a living over there? It's hard for them. So I can't say anything. I'm not going there to, to make a living. So I'm not going there. They're leaving to come here. So it's very difficult. It's a very upsetting kind of phenomenon. So Zana Hamiyah speak about Shivat Sion, going back to Jerusalem, going back to Judea, going back to the land of our forefathers, and yet, very, a very small number go back. Very difficult situation. Very difficult book to read. Finally, the Yamim, the book of Chronicles, is a book that simply chronicles. It's a history book about the Jewish people, beginning with creation. It was written around the year 450 before the Common Era. It was written by somebody in Babel who had a need to do what? You're in Babel. You're in exile. Right? You've been there for now 70 years. You now come to the Beth Knesset. Kines means a gathering place. What are you going to do there? How are you, what's this fundamental issue? How are you going to maintain the what? Judaism, but more than Judaism. Judaism, but more. Continuity. Continuity and more. A community. Right. How are you going to make a bond between people? What is a bond between people? It's the collective history of who you are. Because we share a common history, I maintain a bond with you. Family tree. Yes. But not only biological, but more in a spiritual and collective value system. So he does that. Devereh, I mean, is a work, we don't know his sources, that deviates from the biblical message somewhat, not always, but it's basically the Bible in short form. There are devi- uh, deviations. But generally speaking, it's the Bible again. So he wrote this on some, from some source that we don't know. And he wrote a history of the world, but basically the book from Bereshit all the way to the end of Melachim. That's the Rebim, that's your Tanakh. What we're going to do next week in terms of this issue is to just go to the book of Eeyore, which is a very special book, a very important work. Book of Job, which discusses the most important question of Jewish theology, can't get around it, and then go over the this chart, which I'll make copies for you, of the books of the Bible, the dates when that book is relevant, and the events in history, which kind of just puts together all that we've been saying. The historical books, the events in, in the historical arena, and the dates all together. So we'll just close out with. Um, this last statement. Any um, questions? Timeline. Uh, when did the Bible and the the, the, um, the period, the historic period that it's covered at the end? Uh, around. Uh, well, let's see. Around uh, the end of the Persian period. Hanukkah is not recorded here. But no, not at all. Purpose and the right. Book of Esther. Right. Correct. So how far are we going? About 350 before the common era, I'd say. 350 yeah. before? Yes. Uh, we'll take a five-minute break and then go to the next class. Thank you.